This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Solutions, the leading iGaming PAM platform with a modular approach, including many benefits like a fast, secure, and scalable API-based platform integrated with all major third-party products and services. Make sure you head over to Pragmatic Solutions and join our smart thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Play, a leading game developer providing player favorites to the most successful brands across the industry. With an award-winning multi-product portfolio of slots, live casino, bingo, virtual sports, and more, Pragmatic Play is powering up new possibilities of play through one single API. Visit PragmaticPlay.com and discover your favorite every time. Surprise, surprise, surprise. We're back here at the best of the interest. Bendy Cherniak and Lloyd Danzig, as per always. You guys are looking looking great today. Uh, first and foremost, Benji, what's the latest in the travels of Bendy Cherniak? You've been touring the globe uh, recently. What have you been finding in your travels around the world? Yeah, um, well, I guess the last month I've been uh, on a bit of a tour. I was out in Israel, not all that much business related, a little bit. Um, and then, of course, London for ice and then uh, Japan, uh, primarily skiing, to be honest. And uh, now back in North America, nice and jet lagged on three and a half hours sleep and, uh, and ready to roll. <laughs> That's a, the, the typical life of Benji Charniak. You know, it looks glamorous from the outside, but uh, the sleep deparation is always there uh, in the background. Uh, Lloyd, I, I was going to say, the struggle is real. I, I saw an email come through from Benji on a different thread that he and I are on at like, 3.15 a.m. Eastern this morning saying, hey, I just got back from abroad. And I'm thinking, how's this guy going to make our podcast recording four or five <laughs> hours from now? But lo and behold, he, uh, he made it work. I'm very impressed. It's, it's, the, it's the former ice hockey athlete in, in Bani that is coming <laughs> forward here. Never give up. Uh, guys, we have, a, we have a full packed agenda today in front of us. But um, it cannot not be mentioned, of course, the, uh, uh, the recent acquisition that was announced last week here with the DraftKings acquiring Jackpocket at a cool $750 million. Uh, it's a mix of 55% cash that is being paid out to the, uh, to the investors of uh, Jackpot, uh, together with uh, 45% in DraftKings shares. Uh, I'm just really curious. There's been a lot of commentary around this acquisition already, uh, but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts here now a week later after this acquisition was announced. Uh, Lloyd, uh, perhaps if you want to start, what's what your thoughts here? Yeah, a lot of thoughts. Um... First of all, Benji and I are, are both very close with the guys at Left Lane Capital who, who led the last round for, for Jack Pocket. So congratulations to them. A, a really great and fantastic outcome. Um, a really great outcome and validation of something that guys like me and Benji and Chris Grove and others have been saying for a while, frankly, but maybe not a lot of people have been listening, which is that the TAM in this space is far greater than the aggregate gross gaming revenues of sports betting and iGaming. And uh, it's, you know, you look internationally from a U.S. perspective and you have the aristocrat Neo Games deal and FDJ Kindred. And it seems like there's this convergence between online real money gaming of more traditional forms and some of the newer age forms. And great to see validation of that expansion here in the U.S. You now really have both DraftKings and Fanatics pursuing this one-stop shop strategy, although of a slightly different nature in each case. DraftKings seems to be a bit more gaming focused, at least for now, although they did release a merchandise line. Uh, Fanatic seems a bit more commerce focused, tickets, merchandise, live events, complimenting sports betting, things like that. Um, 
the other thing I'll, I'll just mention is, you know, there's part of this, the growth of this space that makes perfect sense to me. And another part that honestly, I wish I had been more privy to because it's obvious in retrospect. Uh, the part that's obvious is that Americans buy $100 billion worth of lottery tickets every year. And up until very recently, that's been done through what you think about is like almost a caveman-like process of driving to a store, paying in cash for a paper ticket that you have to hold on to and then redeem for hundreds of millions of, of dollars. Uh, and I tell people all the time, if you know anywhere else that people are spending $100 billion a year in completely analog fashion, let me know. I would love to invest in the digitization of, of that business. And so it's really just no surprise at all that the migration of that level of transaction volume online is a large business. The part that I honestly didn't foresee, but is so obvious now in retrospect, is this kind of flywheel virtuous cycle, if you will, where it's easier to buy lottery tickets, so more people buy them, so the jackpots get larger faster, which causes more people to buy lottery tickets, which causes the jackpots to grow faster, uh, and so on. Uh, and so that's why six of the large, eight largest jackpot payouts in U.S. lottery history have all been in the last 18 months. Uh, because these online lottery businesses are making it so much easier to buy lottery tickets. And there's been this flywheel that's been unlocked. So uh, final takeaways, I suppose, are this won't be the last that you hear and see of the migration of lottery sales from an analog to a digital process. And it won't be the last that you hear or see of real money gaming operators leveraging a combination of M&A and in-house development to expand the TAM, expand the potential LTV of customers by cross-selling into these psychologically similar adjacent revenue streams. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, add, I'll add maybe a couple of points to that. And uh, the first one is kind of building on something that Lloyd said as it pertains to the convergence, as you look at DraftKings now joining Fanatics and sort of the convergence of of other forms of real money gaming and entertainment into a one-stop shop and will others pursue that strategy? And, you know, also the commentary that we have been saying for a while now that real money gaming within the U.S. really is a lot more than just the, the iGaming, which is limited to a number of states, and sports betting, which is limited to a, a much larger number of states. And those will continue to grow. But I do think that this is a bit of a turning point in the U.S. market as more and more operators particularly of size and scale, will begin to think about the real money gaming opportunity outside the box of strictly iCasino and, and sports betting and awaiting for growth within those segments, but looking at ancillary products, be it lottery, be it other forms of fantasy, depending on where legislation goes, be it sweeps, you know, be it poker, be it whatever else it may be, uh, office pools, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it all kind of lumps together into the real money gaming universe which is a very, very significant TAM and will continue to be a growing TAM moving forward. And the other point I would make on this is obviously congratulations to the guys at Jackpocket and all of their investors and certainly a fantastic result. But it also speaks a little bit to the difficulty of the U.S. market because here we are with the clear and unequivocal leader in the iLottery space in the U.S. And, you know, Yet you, you wonder, and we're going to talk a little bit later about when is the right time to sell. And, and you wonder, was this the right time? Don't get me wrong. 750 million is a fantastic result and a huge number. But if these guys aren't a unicorn on the B2C side, who is, right? So you, you, you also look at it from that perspective and wonder, had they continued to go down the path a little bit more, allowed the market to circulate and cycle further, you know, would this, could this, should this have been a unicorn or a multi-unicorn exit over time? 
and and what does it say for other stakeholders within the real money games gaming space that they weren't but you know maybe we talk about that a little bit further on in the podcast as well Right, right. We, we're not going to dive too much into detail, but I do have one question on that note. Uh, Jackpot had raised in total $200 million. Uh, they uh, exited at $750 million uh, here. And so the question is uh, perhaps uh, an interesting question that you mentioned here, Bandy. Um, what, what, what were the threats to the business? Because essentially, Jackpot is, an, um, is a middleman between the customer and the actual lottery, right? So you, you would imagine that it's, um, it's a business uh, that can easily be disrupted, right? Both by the actual source, the actual ticket, um, the actual lotteries themselves, perhaps to digitize uh, their own industry uh, or perhaps um, uh, other competitors entering the market. Just quickly, perhaps, like, do we want to make any commentary on uh, the risk profile of this company, seeing that they actually didn't really own the lottery themselves? They were just kind of the middleman here. Was that part of the lower uh, valuation, do you think? Uh, any one of you guys? I'll say that, look, obviously in this space, any degree of regulatory or similar risk is is always a factor. Uh, the reason that I, I think that a lot of the online lottery companies, I don't want to say get a pass, but are, are not hurt too much uh, on valuation by this is that, first of all, the state lotteries love the courier businesses for no cost and, and with no advertising fee. These businesses are generating enormous volumes and they're just tacking on a transaction fee on top of it. They're not cannibalizing. It's you know quite the opposite. In addition, you have to remember that it, it, you know lotteries are, are government-run organizations. They have much different incentive structures than a more capitalistic private enterprise. In any given individual who works at a state lottery is not nearly as incentivized to facilitate online sales as you know Peter Sullivan at, at, at Jackpocket or Akshay at uh, at Jackpot. Uh, and so if you are a state lottery, you know, and, and something both Jackpot and Jackpocket have done quite well is interface with these groups on this topic, um, you might not be in, in such a hurry. Certainly the large B2B suppliers that service the lotteries are trying to push them uh, to go direct to consumer and enable direct sales. But there's a lot of incentive mechanisms that I think make it at the very least a much longer process uh, and one where, honestly, right now, the couriers and the state lotteries have quite a synergistic relationship uh, going. And that's a bit different from some of the other, you know, middle market type or middleman type or, or gray market entities that work in a more zero sum relationship with some of the stakeholders they are displacing. Brilliant. I want to move forward here, guys. So I'm really curious to, to move on. Uh, you know, Invested Interest podcast is uh, perhaps a bit of a selfish endeavor here by myself as a uh, entrepreneur building my own business i get the opportunity to ask uh, some uh, experienced investors uh, how to do my job my own job better here and uh, as a part of that uh, when we raised capital for the first time a couple of years ago we were quite lucky to extend our cap table to some of the most well-connected well-respected and well-established figure in the um, uh, european online gambling industry and in Tim Heath and YOLO, Robin Reed came on board and, and a few others. And um, after we raised that round of capital, obviously um, these investors uh, have a huge ability to help our business to, uh, to grow and to mature. But as a founder, it sometimes feels a little, little bit difficult to, reach, to know when to reach out to, uh, to your investors and ask for their time and ask for their advice, because obviously they are very busy with other projects as well. So I want to just raise this question today. 
like how do you how do you ask your investors for favors and introductions um what is too much what is expected from the investors and perhaps what can you as a founder do to create a good balance between given and taking perhaps uh, benji if you want to uh, kick uh, kick kickstart kick yeah I, i wish uh, you know i wish it was an easy answer to this question and i wish there was a one size fits all answer to this question but from my perspective there really isn't and i think a lot of it is situation specific and, and dependent if i'm a founder and i'm working with investors slash advisors or even just investors ideally i want to surround my cap table with investors who not only are strategic and add value but who are going to be proactive in terms of how they do that which doesn't mean that i as an investor wouldn't still come to those uh i, I that i as a founder wouldn't still come to those investors and ask for assistance for a specific introduction um uh, if and when appropriate but i'd want to be aligning myself with the type of individuals who in making investments want to be part of the journey as opposed to passive in terms of how they approach it so i know that they're already thinking proactively in terms of opening doors and how they can support me right when it comes to favors you know i i think the part of the key to it is to be thoughtful to be specific and and as an investor also thinking in terms of how you're adding value for that investor as opposed to strictly take 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 and obviously they're vested in the growth of your company you know so they want to be aligned with that and helping in any way that they can um but sometimes it's not coming and asking hey can you introduce me to so and so and coming to the same investor every time because they've got a significant rolodex for those introductions i think you've also got to remember that when you're a founder that investor you know in the case of myself or lloyd as an example is involved with multiple businesses and all those businesses generally want to be introduced and or softened and warmed up to all of those same uh, companies everyone wants the into to a draftkings or a fanduel or 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 this company or to a joey levy or to a, this person or that person and you know there's only for ourselves as people who are investing and aligning with companies there's only so many times that you can go back to the well to each of those individuals on a personalized basis i know lloyd has some interesting approaches where he'll have some of his companies lined up with a uh, a number of operators at one time which is a really good approach so i think that when you're a founder you want to be thoughtful to putting yourself into that investor's shoes and ensuring that you're not going back to the well so many times recognizing that each investor only has so much capital to use up as it pertains to their third party relationships yeah i think benji just nailed all, all all of those things and if if i could summarize all all of them in my thoughts is that it it comes down to to incentives in in one form or another uh mark cuban always says sales is about helping not about convincing uh adam smith who's the father of capitalism i i always cite says it's not from the benevolence of the butcher or the baker or the brewer that we expect our dinner but from each's regard for their own self-interest uh it's basically the same thing as mark cuban saying sales is about helping not convincing and it speaks to the fact that you almost don't want to rely on favors ever you want to rely on on incentives uh and so from my perspective as an investor i want to invest in people who i feel inherently motivated to want to help even for non-financial reasons because that's going to make my life a lot easier down the road when it comes to making introductions for that person and similarly to Benji's point in an ideal world you surround yourself with people who seem to be inherently motivated to want you to succeed surround yourself with people that it seems to 
make them joyful when they have the opportunity to make an introduction for you. Uh, but that can't be every person. And even with those types of people, to Benji's point, you know, the the ability of someone to make introductions tends to be proportional to the amount of other people also asking them for those same introductions. So anyone who's particularly coveted is probably coveted by others. And so a few thoughts I have are, you know, one that if you're asking someone for something more like a favor, you should make sure it's something they are uniquely positioned to do. Uh, you wouldn't ask Tim Heath to make grammatical edits to an email that you're writing because there's an infinite number of people that you could ask to make basic grammatical edits, whereas Tim is uniquely positioned to do certain things. So very obviously, you should reserve those things uh, for, for, for people like him. Um, I think being specific and thoughtful to Benji's point and, and having done as much of the work as possible beforehand is so helpful. Uh, one of the worst types of requests to make is, hey, do you know any investors you can introduce me to? Or I will be in the US next week. Is there anyone I should meet with? Uh, those are not good. Th that makes an enormous amount of work for the person. Mental work, actual work. A much better example is, I saw you were connected to these three people. Can I send you an easily forwardable email to each one of them specifying why I, I would like to talk to them? Or I will be in New York for fundraising meetings next week. Here is a link to my investor prospect list. Can you please put your initials next to any of these groups that you are close with and would be able to facilitate an introduction to over email in the next 48 hours? Uh, the latter examples are, are just much more likely, I think, you know, to to, to succeed. Uh, and then finally, to, to Benji's point uh, that, that I thought he made very well is to the extent that it's possible. Look, sometimes you're just asking for a, a favor that is an unmitigated benefit for you uh, with really no upside for the person you're asking. Uh, but hopefully there is something in it uh, for them. And to the extent that you can point that out or spin it into the email or, or the request, I do think it's it's helpful to note you know, especially when you're talking about investors, uh, they already kind of did you a favor in some sense by funding your company and particularly at the early stage, you know, your dream and your vision. Uh, that's as big of a favor in some sense as as many entrepreneurs could ask for. Uh, so I do think it's very useful to, to try to add some value in return, you know, when you're going back. Every investor wants to look out for their own investments and, and their own interests. But when you have 20, 30, 40 different you know, investees requesting introductions and favors, uh, certainly the ones that are adding some sort of value in return, just subconsciously, if nothing else, you know, I think will stick out uh, and have a higher likelihood of a good return on investment for you as the requestor. And right. I'll just add one more point to Lloyd to Lloyd here, and then you, let you jump in, Pierre. Uh, I think that everything that Lloyd said, I would amplify 10x if you're uh, a startup in the space in which I or Lloyd or whomever you're approaching has not invested in and you're coming to us asking for a favor, you know, it's not that we won't, it's not that we would def definitively say no to doing a favor for someone who's not within our, our investment portfolio, but a couple of things. Number one, make that job as easy as possible for the person you're approaching. And, and, and also you got to build the relationship to a certain extent whether that individual is invested or not. But in particular, if they're not, build that relationship nonetheless to the extent that you can, such that in coming to them with the request, it's as natural as can be, as opposed to someone who you barely know coming to you at a left field saying, hey, can you introduce me to this company? I think I heard someone else summarize this. As, I'm going to butcher it, so it's probably not going to even make sense or be as eloquent. But uh, something like, you know, 
make the person that you are making the request of feel like you are giving them a gift uh, rather than asking them a favor. And as close as you can possibly get to, to giving them a, a nice, beautifully wrapped gift with a nice bow on it, uh, the more likely you will, you will be to succeed. And I do think it's a good framework, uh, especially the, the bigger the ask. Right. And we, we, I think we talked about this in previous episodes as well, is that uh, when you talk to see more senior people than yourself in general, whether it's an employee slash manager relationship or whether it's an investee slash investor relationship or whatnot uh, to kind of deliver that request on a silver platter and make it as easy as possible, as you guys point out here as well. When it, uh, everything when it comes to sending a, a proposed meeting, ensuring that you propose that meeting in the time zone of the, uh, of the investor or, or uh, your manager or whoever the most senior person is to for them not to have to use their extra brain power to figure out the difference in time zone. Um, also not having to look for open slots in the calendar, but kind of serve them with a couple of slots that um, that make sense to minimize the communication. And I think what to summarize the points here is essentially try to deliver your request in a way that uses as little brain power and time as possible for the recipient. Uh, essentially, that's what we want to achieve here, right? So that it's easy to execute this uh, favor uh, at the end of the day. I think something like yeah, that. Yeah, is... I think that's right. And another way to frame it is is just to have some empathy and put yourself in the shoes of the person you're making the request of. Imagine yourself in those shoes and what would produce the highest likelihood that you know you would agree to the request and and put your your whole self into fulfilling it and you know tr try to do those things. Try, try to imagine yourself in those shoes. And empathy is if you had to summarize yeah. this in in one word other than incentives, I think empathy is the other key is uh, to, right. to to successful communication like this. And if we were to turn it around there here as well, Lloyd, um, uh, you know, as, a, as an investee, you also want to be helpful to your investors. And of course, there's going to be, going, going to be 100 entrepreneurs with 100 sets of uh, skills and networks and so on and so forth. But uh, are there any general advice that, uh, that you can give perhaps to entrepreneurs on how they can be helpful uh, to, to investors, uh, do you think, uh, Lloyd? Like, have you seen any good examples from your portfolio of, of, um, uh, of uh, investees uh, in your portfolio that have been helpful to you in interesting ways, perhaps? Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of our investors in our fund have come from founders in our portfolio who told other investors in their company, you should check out this fund and they're really helpful and they're great investors on our cap table. So certainly if you're, you're an entrepreneur and uh, you have VC funds on your cap table, they probably are, or at some point, you know, we'll be raising additional and future funds. And uh, every VC uh, appreciates, you know, a, a limited partner reference coming their way from, from a founder. Uh, and we have some great founders in our portfolio who are aware of and follow the developments of other companies in our portfolio, especially ones that have thematic similarities. Uh, and many of them are in regular dialogue that perhaps we facilitated several years ago, but now is, is quite self-sustaining. Uh, and we'll have founders reach out and say, hey, I saw your other company XYZ just announced this. Uh, let them know that you know if they haven't solved this problem yet, here's how we did it. Uh, you should call this person at this company and skip this person at this company. and let me know if you want uh, to put the founder in touch and happy to do a 30 minute primer on how to particularly optimize this milestone or whatever it is. Uh, so that kind of thoughtfulness and, and usefulness, I think definitely goes, uh, uh, goes, goes a long way. 
Brilliant. Uh, moving on here in the agenda, uh, next point of today is um, a, a little bit of a discussion around what it takes to actually launch a fund in the first place. Uh, I suppose short answer is money. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to the next topic. But um, of course, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, Lloyd, if I were to do start on your side, um, if you were to pick one of the three, what is the most important skill or asset to have when you launch a fund? Is it number one, money? Number two, a financial background and uh, understanding of uh, what constitutes a good investment, or number three, a great network, or number four, question mark, if you want to fill in that fourth option. Um, that's a tough one. Uh, may maybe the, the best way I can answer is, especially since this is somewhat of an obscure topic, but hopefully still interesting uh, for, for some, is outline what you even need to do to, to launch a fund so that, for example, the money question can become a bit, bit clearer. Um, and then get to the softer but more complicated questions that you also threw in. Uh, so very, very technically, uh, to launch a fund, you, you need a generally a law firm that is going to do a few things for you. They're going to create some legal entities, uh, the limited partnership into which your limited partners or investors put the money in. That's why you hear VCs call their investors LPs, stands for limited partners. You have another entity called the general partnership that oversees and makes investment decisions for the limited partnership. Uh, and then you have a third entity called your management company uh, that receives the quarterly management fees and advises the fund on its day-to-day -day operations. And so in addition to creating those three entities, you also need the legal documents that specify the relationship between those entities and how capital will flow and what all the different rules are. Uh, the most important I think agreement is usually called the LPA, the limited partnership agreement. And that's between the general partner who's making the investment decisions and the limited partners who put the money in. And it specifies all sorts of things like what is okay to invest in and how many years does the fund have to make investments and what sort of expenses will be allocated in different fashions and, and so on and so forth. You also need a, a, a document called your subscription agreement, which is the document the investor fills out with all of their information and confirms the type of entity that they are and that they meet various accreditation and tax statuses. Uh, and then some funds use something called a, a PPM, a private placement memorandum, although those have, have gone out of vogue a bit uh, as of recent. And an LPA and a subscription agreement are, are hundreds of pages each. So the first thing that you kind of need to do to launch a fund is get all those legal entities and all those legal documents in place. And especially for your first fund, most law firms will make you pay that upfront out of pocket. Once you're on fund three or four or five, they'll defer those bills until you close the fund and let you pay it out of that money. But if you're trying to launch your first fund, you're, you're going to have to prepare to foot that legal bill, which especially in the US, especially in New York, certainly can be you know <laughs> fa fairly significant. And then the other major cost is usually what is referred to as the GP commit, the general partner commitment. Investors want to see that the person raising the fund has some skin in the game. Uh, and so depending on your net worth and your track record and, and, and various things at the size of your fund, people expect anywhere from a one to I'd say three to 4% GP commit on the low end. And sometimes you'll see a, a much higher one. YOLO's new fund, for example, they've announced publicly they're putting in 50% of the capital. Uh, but when you're talking about a first-time fund, you're usually talking about an individual, a solo person uh, who's going to have to put up 
somewhere between one to three or 4% of the size of the fund. Uh, so in terms of, you know, how much money do you need to launch a fund? Well, you need enough to pay the lawyers to set up those documents and, and put together uh, those entities. And you need enough for the GP commit. And then you probably need enough to go without salary while you raise money full time uh, or at least without, you know, another full time job. And depending where you live and, you know, a number of other factors that could be a, a astonishing uh, amount of money for most people or perhaps a more digestible one. And that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts. I should mention there are, are many other things that you typically need to procure and organize and pay for. Uh, most funds, either in-house or externally, use something called a fund administrator. That is the back office group that processes the wire transfers and the capital calls and the distributions and keeps track of all the stock purchase agreements and liquidation preferences and make sure uh, that, that the books are being kept properly. Uh, you'll probably need an accounting firm that's going to do an audit every year or at least uh, provide tax returns uh, for, for all of the LPs. Uh, and then there might be other things. There are VC-specific CRM systems, uh, deal sourcing tools, deal analysis and reporting tools, uh, software for portfolio companies to report their KPIs that then get aggregated at a portfolio basis and other things of that nature. Uh, and that's, you know, roughly speaking, uh, what a fund is. Uh, but that's all the technical stuff. With enough elbow grease or money, anyone can do those things that I just described. What ends up being much harder is, is perhaps the other part that you referred to, is having a network and reputation and track record such that investors want to back you and, and trust you with their money, uh, and having a brand and thesis and unique positioning such that the best entrepreneurs or some subset of the best entrepreneurs want to work with you and, and want to take funding from you over others. Uh, and how to accomplish those things is, you know, a story for a book or a much longer conversation that I don't even purport to have the answers to. Uh, but hopefully that's a little interesting and useful as to technically what it takes to, to launch a fund. And then, of course, you know, on that softer side, uh, I don't have the answers for you for how you go about solving those those last two items. Well, I think you do have some of the answers, Lloyd, because you're living and breathing it right now <laughs> as you kind of. Uh, you know, work your way through the space to determine what companies you're going to make investments in. And then I think the other component to that is as you figure out where you're uniquely positioned is building relationships, not just with founders, but with all of the stakeholders within that industry where you have that expertise. So as to be able to add the maximum value to your founders to, to, to create uh, the best possible outcomes for them for you, and most importantly, for your LPs who are giving you their hard-earned money and trusting you with it. And all those things go in a circle and kind of work together. And I'm from the outside looking in. I don't run a VC firm, right? So I think the other thing you need to bring that Lloyd didn't mention is you need to bring not just a 100% commitment or 150% commitment. At a minimum, the same commitment you're looking for from all of your founders, if not more, as the, as the venture capital who's going to be asking for significant amounts of outside capital to make investments in these companies. But there are those parallels, the same way that you're looking for founders that have that, you know, that unique dynamic that it takes to run a successful company as, as, as a venture capital is going to raise outside capital. Those, v, those family offices and LPs could do whatever they want with their money or do nothing with their money. They could go to Disneyland and spend it. You know, they could put it in uh, bonds and earn small percentages risk-free, or they can invest it if they want to allocate some other capital to third-party funds. 
any individual fund they look at is one of 100 or 200 or 500 options as to which fund they want to go into. And all those factors will depend on what verticals that family office is interested in. So my point being that if you're going to start a VC firm, in addition to all of those technical aspects that were just alluded to, in addition to industry knowledge and infrastructure, you've got to have a 150% commitment because I often say you can't get half pregnant with these types of things. And in this case, you really can't. It's a long-term commitment. And, you know, if you're starting a fund, you know, you also have to be aware that you're not just really starting a fund, you're really going down a career path because to be successful at it, it isn't really about your first fund. Hopefully your first fund will be as massively successful as can be for both your LPs and yourself. But as you get better at it, you probably raise more capital in fund two and more capital than that in fund three because you gain more reputational aptitude and more expertise in finding what your sweet spot is as, as a fund manager, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's really in those ancillary, those second, third, et cetera, funds where you're going to have bigger, bigger LP capital to work with in most cases, where, where you as the founder of the fund uh, are, are likely to achieve more financial success. So it, it requires a long-term commitment. I don't know how long long-term is, but, but you can't be in it like a longer term than even a founder starting a company, right? Because as the LP, as bringing in LP capital into a fund, you're going to have a whole bunch of those individual companies. And some of them might liquidate relatively early. Some might be on a longer journey. And you have to see it through the entire way through, not just for that founder, but for all of the LPs that you represent and want to get the maximum ROI with for, which is really your one, your number one priority is all those LPs. And, and when you think about that in terms of not just fund one, but fund two and fund three, it's really a career decision to start a fund and thinking of that long-term horizon over not a two to three year period or a five year period, but over a 10 to 20 plus year period. Um, unless Lloyd, I'm, I'm misreading it in terms of your perception on any of this. No, completely agree uh, on, on all fronts. Um, look, being a VC is a great job. Uh, I get to spend my time generally talking to fascinating entrepreneurs, executives, investors, uh, and, and all that. And, uh, but, uh, it is not a, uh, it is not a get rich quick path, uh, to, to launch your own fund as, as a solo manager. It's a longer path. Uh, you should want to run a firm, not just a fund, uh, if you're getting into, uh, the business and, you know, perhaps at later dates, you can, you, maybe you'll change the strategy a little, maybe you'll focus later or earlier stage. Maybe you'll add credit to exclusively equity deals. Certainly you could be open to that level of flexibility. Uh, but I would definitely suggest that you be prepared for a career as a institutional allocator of LP capital. If you are going down that path, uh, rather than doing something on a one-off basis. And by the way, uh, for those who want to try and, and, and play around a bit without more commitment, there are other ways to do it. Uh, SPVs through platforms like AngelList uh, are very popular these days. If you're someone who thinks they'd like to launch a fund, but you don't have a track record and you don't actually know if you'll enjoy raising money from LPs, finding deals, following those deals, adding value to them and reporting back to your LPs, you could do a deal on a one-off basis uh, through what's called an SPV or a special purpose vehicle where you secure a million dollar allocation in a company that you know the management team of, you go out to investors that you know, and they write 
10,000 or 25 or 50 or $100,000 checks into that one deal. Uh, and perhaps you get some sort of performance fee. Once all your investors get their money back, you probably get a, a piece of the profits beyond that. And that is your financial incentive. And then in that case, you know, first of all, you don't have to deal with a lot of the, the legal and back office and administrative cost and burden that I mentioned that's required for a fund. You also are not tied to being an institutional capital allocator for a, a long duration, aside from, of course, watching over that one particular investment. Uh, and if it goes well, there are many fund managers today who got started by doing a few SPVs, showing people that they could get into good deals. The deals they got into were not only marked up in subsequent rounds, but were invested by top tier firms uh, and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, and that's why, especially now that the cost of running and launching SPVs, I think a, a platform called Sidecar is probably the most popular one in the current moment. Uh, there always seems to be a different one. Uh, that is, I think, a great middle ground or stepping stone uh, for those looking to both see if they have what it takes and, and really enjoy this type of career, uh, and also as a way to demonstrate and build up a track record that uh, is really difficult to raise a fund in the absence of. So, so it's clear, obviously, that um, creating that track record, being a person that has a good name and reputation uh, and so on, is important uh, for when you when you take that leap and, and launch your first fund in order to to get that trust from uh, from from LPs. And so to that point, uh, Benji, I have a question for you here. So you've been investing privately for a number of years and you've obviously created that network. You obviously you obviously have that uh, trust uh, and and. Um, and, um, and background uh, in investing and doing that really well. Um, have you woken up in the middle of the night sometime and thought to yourself, I should launch a fund? I really haven't, you know, and, and in fairness, <laughs> look, I, I, I do some investment. I also do some advisory, some consulting. So I'm wearing a few different hats these days. And the the the, the concept of, of, of starting a fund for the reasons that I've outlined and the level of commitment that it requires if I were to get involved in that that piece of it, I would have to look at it over a, a much longer trajectory. And, you know, I, it's just not where I'm at and it's not a commitment that I'm prepared to make. And, um, you know, the, the, the thought process of I and I see it firsthand, not just in, in, in uh, with, with Lloyd as one example, but with other funds in which uh, I have some level of involvement or some level of relationship. You know what what is involved on a day to day basis. I think it's a fantastic career opportunity, but I think you would have to go in eyes wide open, and and my eyes are wide open right now, and I think it's fantastic for many individuals. I don't think it would be the perfect fit for me. I deal with a lot of headaches that Benji does not even have to think about the existence <laughs> of, and I am jealous of that every day. Uh, you know, look, again, running a fund is fantastic. I think for the majority of people, if if you have the flexibility and capital on your own uh, to, to deploy. Uh, certainly you're in for a better work-life balance uh, and general level of sanity. Uh, it's, uh, as you know, Pierre, as a founder, it's a really, I hope it should be for most people, it's, it's a burden and a responsibility to take people's hard-earned money uh, that they could allocate to anything else. Uh, and your whole life and modality and day-to-day -day becomes completely different as soon as you take $1 from anyone else, as opposed to up until the point where you have taken zero. Uh, and I think there's both for companies and investors. Uh, there, there, there's something nice about having the biggest company and the biggest fund possible. There's also something really nice about controlling your own destiny, being your own boss, not having other people to answer to either explicitly or implicitly out of a feeling of responsibility. Uh, and, and so 
I, if I were Benji, would probably not be starting a fund anytime so, soon. That's uh, that's. Hang on, Lloyd. If I are you saying if I started a fund that I would have less time for skiing in Japan? Is that what you're trying to say? I am suggesting that that would be the case, indeed. All right, <laughs> All right I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> that would be terrible. Then we could do. Uh, then we couldn't do any more uh, travel adventures for Benji in, uh, in this podcast. So keep 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 your keep your freedom here, Benji. Uh, for for the, for the good sake of the podcast, more than anything. Um, Yes, so, so a lot of parallels to draw here, essentially, between the entrepreneurial journey, perhaps, and the, and the VC journey, um, more, than, uh, more than what most people would think. Uh, it's an interesting perspective. Um, I want to jump over to, uh, uh, to the fourth point as well. We talked about this earlier in the podcast uh, uh, today. Um, when is a good time to sell your business? And um, anyone who uh, experienced the FOMO of the 2020-2021 crypto rally, will uh, understand that this is not an easy question to answer, right? Because when uh, a business is booming, uh, or in, in that case, when crypto was booming, there's the feeling that this is going to continue forever, right? So you want to hold on to your assets. Uh, but uh, at some points, the music perhaps will stop and um, selling your business too late could also perhaps be difficult because you might not get the valuation you want. It's difficult to time that exact peak of valuation, right? So uh, I want to start on, on Benji's side uh, uh, here. From your experience, you know, you've obviously made an exit yourself as well. Um, when is a good time to sell your business? Like, how, how did you reason when you sold uh, Don Best back in the day? Like, did you feel like it was the right time and how so? And what did you learn from that? You know, someone, someone said to me, the best time to sell your business is when you sell your business, because you know what you know, you don't know what you don't know, you can't predict the future, you can't value de-risking and what it means for you versus what it means for the market or for somebody else. It's a personal decision, right? Um, and, and of course, there's other factors to consider when you start taking outside capital. And sometimes in those instances, there are investors who might have a say in it, depending on what amount of equity of your own company you still hold. And that, that might be a part where Lloyd comes into the conversation. But from a founder perspective, you know, um, I said it earlier that there's no right or wrong to our other topic. There's also no right or wrong here. It's very much a personal decision in terms of what your risk tolerance is. Look, I sold my business in, uh, I think it was the end of 2017 is when we sold Don Best. Had we hung on to it for another 12 to 24 months, would it have been a bigger outcome? I have no doubt that it would have been. But had I hung on to it longer for than longer than that, I would have run into COVID. I'm not sure if I would have made payroll, right? So there's, it, it's hard to say what the dynamics are. You know, you that that make it a right or a wrong decision, other than to say that it's a personal decision, um, and and that you really can't predict the future and you shouldn't second guess yourself. That being said, you know you can always look in terms of where is the market now. You know, what is the best way to maximize the opportunity? Because you only, you know, for many entrepreneurs, you have a business one time and a successful business one time. Of course, there's founders who will have multiple exits. Um, but, but, you know, when you're looking at it in terms of making a life-changing amount of capital, you've also got to determine in terms of the risk-reward ratio. When is it enough? When do you need to, you know, how much is too much in terms of what risk you're willing to take? And, you know, uh, there's no guarantees as it pertains to which direction the market will go. You know, some people time the market perfectly. You look at some of the deals that got done around the time when the score sold their business. And what if they had waited another year to sell their business? Would it have been as good an outcome for them as when they sold to Penn when they did? So you look at it and from all those perspectives in terms of timing. And, and, and you know, I hate saying that there is no good answer, that there's no right or wrong, but there isn't. And it's a very personal decision. 
Yeah, I think try, trying to time the market is is just completely infeasible. Uh, and there are other costly but not exorbitantly expensive ways to diversify market risk. Uh, Mark Cuban, very famously, when he sold his business uh, to Yahoo, I believe, and it was paid mostly in stock, took out a massive hedge on the possibility that Yahoo's share price would fall by the time he could liquidate his shares uh, and then ended off paying perfectly. Uh, the dot-com crash would have basically evaporated. I, you can look it up. It's well-documented. I'm forgetting hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of wealth. And he ended up getting paid out on what was essentially a costless hedge that I'm sure his financial advisor or, or investment bank who handled that took care for him. I think that... Um, in addition to obviously all the things that Benji said being correct about the individuality of, of the circumstance. In general, you want to sell your business when it's growing and profitable. Uh, it just means that, you know, for any given state of your business, you will be able to sell it for more if it is growing and profitable at that time, all else, you know, being equal. Uh, and so if you're in a growth phase, but don't necessarily know that you will be in the future, that could be a useful indication. Uh, also a useful indication to map out what, what does it mean for you? How, how much money will you personally walk away with? And, you know, what does that afford you? And, and how does that compare to not having the opportunity to work on the business anymore? Which I think brings me to my other thought, which is, again, this is, is not so much me speaking as an investor, but, but putting my entrepreneurial hat on, uh, is the question of what, what would you do if you sold? Uh, very famously, when when Facebook received, I think, a, a one billion or two billion dollar buyout offer early on, um, after only I think having raised half a million dollars total, and probably with you know ten or twelve employees, uh, and Mark Zuckerberg said, you know what, if I sold Facebook today, I'd probably just go start another social network, and I like the one that I have, so why don't I just keep it and keep building it. Uh, and obviously, it's like easy to romanticize that story since it worked out quite well. There's probably dozens of examples where it did not work out quite so well. Uh, but I do think that if as the founder, you sit there and you ask yourself the question, say, if I had all this money in my pocket now, what would I do? And your answer is, well, I would just go restart another version of what I'm already working on. And I kind of like the one I have. That could be an interesting indication that, you know, may maybe you're not quite ready. Uh, but I think it's all, all personal and individualistic. Certainly once investors outside come into play, they will have their own uh, incentives. Uh, as an individual angel investor, sometimes you just want to get some liquidity and, and see any of your companies two, three, four, or 5x. Uh, a lot of VCs uh, tend to expect their distributions to follow a power law where only one or two of your investments make up almost the entirety of your returns. Uh, and so in those cases, you often see venture capital investors want their best performing companies uh, not to sell too early and, and, and to hold and continue building and, and continue growing. Uh, and then finally, there's the obvious component uh, of what, what is the actual deal structure? We, we come full circle. We talk about uh, Jackpocket, for example. Uh, they'll receive hundreds of millions of dollars in DraftKings stock that they will have some degree of influence in regards to their performance and product development capabilities. And uh, if they believe in DraftKings, uh, and particularly with themselves as part of it, uh, perhaps that DraftKings stock appreciates in value more over the next five years than their stock in Jackpocket would have as a standalone business. And again, it's not something anyone will ever have a crystal ball to be able to predict, but particularly in deals that have an earnout and or stock component, your belief in the acquiring organization and your interest in 
confidence in their success is also a factor that should always be compared to holding and retaining 100% ownership of existing co-stock. And I think another important point building on what Lloyd said is, you know, you're right. You know, if you're a founder and you really enjoy what you're doing and the answer is that, you know, you, you would sell the company to go do it again. You've also got to look at it from the perspective of not just when to sell, but who your dance partner is and what role you're going to play within that organization moving forward, if any role, right? Is the idea that someone's going to acquire your company and you sail off onto the sunset day one is the idea that you're going to be taking chips off the table to still have an opportunity to grow your organization and, and, and achieve your mandate within the infrastructure of a new organization, you know, is the idea that, that, you know, you're going to stay on for an earnout period. And what does that look like? There's so many factors that come into play when determining, you know, when is the right time to sell your business. And, and part of that depends on who your dance partner options are or option is if there's only one, one potential dance partner looking at your business and how well that will fit with what, as Lloyd alludes to, some of those personal goals are both financially and professionally. You know, that, that makes me think of the fact, and uh, it's something that, that we, we talk about with, with Chris Grove a lot as, as well, is that, you know, right here, we're kind of talking about the upside case. When your business is doing really, really well and you get nearly a billion dollar acquisition offer, you know, sh should you take it or not? And certainly those are champagne problems to have. We, we should all be uh, so, so fortunate. Much, much more commonly, uh, sort of the inverse of all of this, I think, is that there are founders... Uh, who maybe find themselves getting in a little over their head or they had a good idea and a good product, but realize they're not quite cut out for the entrepreneurial journey or any number of other things, who would benefit from trying to sell a lot earlier. Uh, there's a lot of young, early stage companies in our space, for example, that frankly don't have the best prospects as standalone companies. Maybe what they've built is more of a product or a feature than a company. Maybe the founder is great at certain things, but not all of the things you need to be great at to, to build a company on your own. And when you're young and nimble and small and haven't raised a lot of outside capital, one of your biggest advantages is agility and the ability to be flexible. Uh, and so I think there are a lot of young early stage companies, one to five to 10 person companies that would do quite well to consider creative early exit and M&A opportunities. For example, Benji used the phrase, I think, you know, building your product under the umbrella of a larger, more well-resourced organization, which can still have a lot of the characteristics of entrepreneurship and a lot of financial incentives that are similar to those of entrepreneurship, but also come with the benefits of working at a large organization with a back office and administrative capabilities and all sorts of support. Uh, so it is fascinating and sexy and interesting to think about, ah, if I get a billion dollar acquisition offer one day, should I maybe say no? Uh, but that's certainly the rarer case. A much more frequent case that I think is less glamorous and less talked about is when should founders think about some more creative early exit opportunities uh, and how might they compromise those by perhaps sticking with a particular business plan for too long? Uh, because, of course, once you're negotiating anything from a position of weakness, that negotiation becomes infinitely more difficult. Except bear in mind, Lloyd, that in those instances, and uh, all very valid points, but what one should bear in mind is that in those instances, more often than not, there's definitely exceptions, you're not coming at it from a position of massive strength. Meaning, sure. 
you started your company, you thought you were going to go to X. In reality, you only got to 20% of X or 30% of X or 5% of X or 50% of X. It's going to be difficult to get over the, get over the hump. Maybe you're having difficulty raising some more capital right now at reasonable terms. And the more attractive alternative based on all that is some form of M&A on potentially not the best terms possible. So, you know, there, there was another Very side fair. to that coin, but, but, but that's all part of the game. That's all part of the reality of trying to grow a business, uh, uh, be it in, in, in times of economics flourishing or be it in, in, in what we saw in the last couple of years, which are some more difficult times. And, uh, uh, you know, all that plays into these equations and conversations. Yeah, just to put some numbers to it, there are probably several companies in our space right now that, for example, maybe raised a million dollars at a $10 million valuation, never really hit their growth trajectory, but have a really interesting product and maybe a user base that is active and is and is worthwhile to a larger operator. And now someone will come in and offer a million dollars for the business. And if you raise a million dollars in preferred shares, that means the first million goes out to those investors. And of course, as a founder, if you get such an offer, you can always go to your investors and say, look, I want to take this. If we don't take this, it'll be nothing. But I'd like to walk away with something for myself. Can I carve out a piece of this payment? And those type of negotiations certainly happen. But you could imagine yourself being in such a position. Do you want to sell your company today for a million dollars? And that million goes straight to the investors. But hey, you save face. You get one in the scorecard that says you had a successful exit. You do a nice press release that probably doesn't mention the terms and certainly can be amplified in different ways. Your advisors and investors get to do the same, et cetera, et cetera. Or do you push on? And even though there's no immediately obvious way to raise capital in the near future, you know, maybe you see a 10% chance that you can bootstrap yourself to a point where you have the metrics and unit economics to raise a flat round 12 months from now. Uh, it's not entirely obvious how to do that calculus and, you know, whether the 10% chance of maybe having success of raising money next year is more or less valuable than a 100% chance of, you know, getting your investors 1x their money back and putting a win for yourself in the scorebook. Um, I don't know every founder at a different point in their life and uh, who's of a different disposition will treat those sort of trade-offs differently. Uh, but I do think there are there are many more founders going through the type of trade-off uh, that I just described today uh, than are deciding whether to accept or reject $750 million upfront offers. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, it's it's just not easy and you can't really Google it and you can't really ask ChatGPT for a reliable answer. And you have to hope you can rely on you know a good network and, and a good amount of experience and, and I guess a bit of intuition. I mean, the only thing I will say, whether, you know, <clears throat> chat J GPT may not know the answer, but I do. 1x is still better than 0x. That I do know. Bad GPT. Look no further. There you go. Yes. Uh, I, I throw in something else here as well, guys, as well. A bit on a soft on, a, on the softer side as well, which is perhaps the, um, the founder energy that you have in the moment. Um, I mean, I, I get the feeling sometimes that... Uh, being an entrepreneur is kind of like you're, you're living like dog years in a way where one human years is eight entrepreneur years, uh, you know, and, and uh, it takes uh, it takes a lot of energy uh, from you, of course, and it takes a lot of focus from uh, perhaps the rest of your uh, life when it comes to social connections and family connections and so on and so forth. And um, perhaps there is a question uh, to be asked yourself as well once in a while as an entrepreneur is like, can I can I keep this energy up? in the next one, two, three, four uh, years, because maybe the growth of the company depends on 
the founders uh, energy to remain to continue to grow uh, the organization certainly if it's a small team that you deal with and uh, a lot of resp responsibility falls on the founder and um, if you um, perhaps feel that you're at the end of burning the candles from both ends it could be a good question to ask yourself it is a good time to proactively uh, go out and look for a buyer in for, for the business as well before uh, it goes to the before it goes too far uh, and you lose that energy and the motivation to keep uh, grinding you know 12 14 16 hours a day whatever it is absolutely I, I think that is is critical you know that you've heard me say many times on this program our final diligence question for ourselves is would we invest in a future stake in this founder's earnings regardless of what they were pitching today and the hope is that that filters out a bit um what you're talking about it shows how important it is that you bet on the right person and that person have that energy to manifest whatever qualities you're betting on um it is not at all uncommon for entrepreneurs to think they are energized by their idea when actually they are energized by the hype and growth and funding that that idea is attracting and then as we move from a hype cycle to you know a more muted funding cycle uh once that hype and growth fades away certainly sometimes i think if there wasn't a really proper inherent energizing relationship between the founder and the idea and the business to start with uh times like these current market conditions low tide what uh, you know what have you can can reveal that uh, and then i think other times even properly motivated and energized founders who really did start something that is their life's mission that they think they were put on this earth to do uh, as you mentioned, there is some sort of dog years component to this whole entrepreneurship thing. And you go through enough funding rounds and down rounds and recapitalizations of the company, and you have to deliver enough bad news to enough people who you really respect and wanted to impress. Uh, I think even, you know, the, the best founder market fit in the world can find an energy degradation that comes from that. And so, uh, if anything, I hope that's uh, a lesson in raising funding responsibly at reasonable valuations that you think you can attain and, and, and achieve and, you know, looking for the best, most sustainable and best fitting investors, not just the ones who will invest at the highest valuation. I, I think, you know, chasing things <clears throat> like valuation and, and, and unicorn status and such, those seem to be the recipe for causing the degradation of energy among founders who do have the right market or product fit obviously as mentioned the goal is to hopefully at least make sure you have that aligned uh and that you're not just energized by the growth and the hype and the funding as opposed to the business itself but, but coming back to the initial question when is the right time to sell if you as an entrepreneur are debating do i want to take the offer of x or continue along on the journey and you're not feeling as energized as oh, you yeah. did a week ago or a month ago that, that probably is a tell point. And look, another option for an entrepreneur is always, you know, when is the right time for me to, 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 to consider for us to grow to the next level, whether I'm the right person to, to spearhead that growth. And maybe as the right person to get us to this level. Great point. Exiting today is an opportunity, but bringing in, you know, as a new COO or COO, CEO, uh, individual uh, XYZ can help catapult us to that. So there's all those considerations and, uh, you know, I think that as an entrepreneur, you know, we'd like to think that you're always going to be the gal or the guy to take us to the finish line. 
Um, but just being self-aware enough to be asking those questions. These aren't good questions to be asking yourself as entrepreneurs. These are great questions to be asking yourself. Right. And, and you know, as, um, as an asset, as a personality, uh, you often ask, is it better to be creative or to be structured if we would put those at two polar uh, opposites? And they say that uh, there's a saying that uh, creative people start companies but uh, structured people run them uh, at the end run when they get to a certain size. And to your point, Bendy, um, if you're a creative founder with uh, a lot of creative energy, perhaps there will be an inflection point at some time when, when you are not the right person to spearhead the company anymore. You are more uh, meant to be in that more chaotic environment that the company needs someone who is more structured. That's a good, um, a good tell sign as well. It's hard to be both at the same time. It's, and I think it's few founders perhaps that can make that transition through, uh, through time to, uh, uh, to, to, to evolve from that creative kind of chaotic environment founder to a more structured uh, CEO, perhaps. So that's also something to uh, keep in mind and, and foresee as a founder in the future. Yeah. Uh, last point of today, guys. So um, I will, uh, I, uh, we, we are turning the tables here a little bit. Uh, so, uh, so I'm usually the moderator here in the uh, Vested Inter podcast, but uh, I'm going to be put in the hot seat, I am told, for the last uh, point of today. So uh, I'll leave the word over to the venue, perhaps. Yeah, well, we're putting you in the hot seat, Pierre, because for a deep dive today, and we don't have all that much time here, unfortunately, we may need to uh, yeah. do a part two on this one at another date, but we have a few minutes to work with here. We wanted to take a deep dive, Pierre, in, into your organization with myself and uh, Lloyd doing a bit of the grilling. And I don't think we're going to have time right now to get into the entire history of your organization, but maybe really briefly, you can start by telling us you know, just what some of the challenges are that you're facing as you look to scale your company from, from, from when you started to where you are today, that might be a good place to get this started. Right, so uh, since I'm in the hot seat uh, here, maybe I'll uh, turn the light uh, a little bit to reflect that fact. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, to your, to your point, Evandi, I think um, in our case, in the conference media industry within a niche industry, the challenge that we are facing is that we have a quite limited talent pool for a lot of our positions within the company. So you would imagine we are very content-based, for example, and so we need really strong individuals in the company who can book the right speakers in the right panels. Um, even when it comes to podcasts or news that we produce, uh, we need to have that content network uh, in order to consistently uh, produce kind of cutting-edge content in the business. And um, really and truly, we can probably count the individuals on two hands in the world that uh, have the skills uh, today uh, to produce that type of content on a tier one uh, format. And so obviously uh, for myself uh, as the founder of the business, I've, uh, I, I'm born and bred in this industry. Uh, I've grown up in this industry. I've created a network throughout the years uh, that have led me to the opportunity to, to build a business like this. But um, when we start to scale to, uh, to new markets, to, uh, to new events, um, the company can't rely on me to constantly uh, do the outreach and, and kind of be that center of gravity uh, that uh, that brings the, uh, the the kind of the senior uh, delegates to our shows or to our media, uh, and that's that's a really difficult challenge for us is to find those individuals that understand the industry, that have the network, that can speak the language of uh, of senior individuals that can sit on a call one to one and actually have good and, and solid. Um, conversations with them. Um, that's always the big challenge for us. And that's one of the reasons that we have decided to build our companies, build our company as a remote first uh, organization, because we are based here in Malta. We have our 
head offices in Malta, but uh, the talent pool is so limited to some of the more important positions that we have in the company that we need to be able to look for that talent uh, elsewhere if we are going to uh, try to kind of keep that uh, level of integrity that we try to bring to the products. Pierre, I noticed uh, last few months you, you guys have, have done a bit of a, a rebrand. You've you've sort of dropped the iGaming and, and gone to, to Next, Next.io. And I, I assume the intent was to better encapsulate the fact that you know, even even already, your conferences have always had many other uh, streams and channels. Uh, you've always had a metaverse uh, track at at uh, Next in in New York, and I know this year you have uh, uh, our good friend John Wall Street leading more of a uh, sports media one with Stephen A. Smith, who I find very annoying personally, but I'm always eager to <laughs> hear his thoughts. He's quite a divisive guy and I'm on, you know, probably the less favorable camp, but nonetheless, that's what it, it strikes me when I see someone rebrand. Uh, it seems in this case to be with the goal of better communicating to the audience that we are multifaceted. We cover and hold events that cover many different areas do I have that right? Am I reading what you wanted me uh, as one of your, you know, target audience to read into that? Uh, tell us about, you know, how that decision gets made and, and how you guys went through that process. Yeah, well, uh, Lord, you'll have the chance to tell Stephen A. Smith your opinion about him live in person on the 6th and 7th of March. You just want to, uh, to throw that in there. Uh, to your point, uh, hello, I think uh, the uh, the rebound question is actually a, a two-part, why we decided to rebound from I Give Me Next to Next.io. And uh, the first reason is quite unexpected, perhaps. Uh, and that is, um, you know, we are raised in the industry here on the European side where the term iGaming encapsulates all online gambling, whether it's sports betting, poker, uh, online casino. Uh, whereas we quickly learned that uh, when we launched our New York show um, in 2021, that uh, the term iGaming in North America means something very different, right? And that is uh, specifically referring to online casino, although iGaming isn't really used as a term that widespread over in the North American market. So that term was a little bit confusing for uh, our American friends. And um, sometimes it actually turned out that it played into our favor because uh, last year when we hosted uh, Next New York, we, we had a really difficult time to get the the real industry leaders from the operator side to uh, attend and to speak at uh, Next NYC in 2021 and 2022. Uh, but we did manage to get Adam Greenblatt uh, in 2023, which was um, a big highlight for us. And when I spoke to Adam Greenblatt, uh, I thanked them for coming aboard. And, you know, as uh, BetMGM, they are a leader in online casino. And he told me that, yeah, Pierre, it's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, we are so happy that there is an organizer who is focusing specifically on online casino. That's why I decided to speak at your show. So, yeah, you know, it worked in our favor when it came to Adam Greenblatt. But um, nonetheless, we felt that that term uh, did uh, did not really reflect on who we were in the North American uh, side of the business. The second point is um, more to your point, which is that we feel that Next.io is a bit of a statement, first and foremost. It's a solid brand. Whoever sees our company name is probably going to assume that we mean business with, uh, with a domain like that. It's a four-letter domain, and the .io is, uh, is also very conducive of a forward-thinking kind of techy uh, brand. Um, and it also alludes to the fact that we, while we are catering to the online gambling industry, 
it doesn't mean that all discussions have to be super technical about what's happening within our industry at all time. I think as professionals in this industry, uh, we also want to understand what's happening outside of the industry. Um, we uh, we perhaps want, uh, want that convergence between the sports media sector and the online, online gambling and sports betting industry, or perhaps the Web3 industry or other kind of future forward tech industries uh, and how they relate and how they can push our industry forward. And by extension, I think as well, as a founder, it is important to dream big, you know? And, and so like, if you sit down as a founder and if you really ask yourself, like if I continue to take all the right decisions in my business for the next 20 years, what will my business look like? You know, if you, if you don't want to just settle down and grow 5% each year and protect your revenue, but if you really want to push the business forward into, uh, into the next dimension, how would the business look like? And I asked myself, you know, in 20 years, could our business be a $1 billion business? You know, it seems, it seems so far away. It seems almost like a ambiguous, impossible question that you were like, how do you go to the moon type of thing? Like if you just have if you just have a car, you know, um, but uh, I think if you break the question down into steps and think for first principles, it becomes a bit more digestible. So in our case, um, what if we conquer the um, media and conference landscape in the um, in the um, in the online sports betting and online gambling vector? That would probably take our business to around a hundred million dollar valuation. That's just ten percent of of uh, of a one billion dollar valuation. But if we conquer our industry, can we then copy paste our business model into other verticals as well, whether it being sports, uh, sports media, whether it being investing and try to create content and, and media and, and, um, and uh, events targeting, targeting that sector, whether it being Web3. Um, so so now, the, now the business goes from an EDR, which is, um, which is an, uh, an industry business to uh, with intelligence, which is the parent company of EDR. So with intelligence is a media company that is operating in several verticals. Uh, and, uh, that is closer to a $1 billion, uh, dollar business, uh, essentially. So, um, I think the, the next.io rebrand is kind of alluding to, uh, that future that we have ahead of ourselves as well, that we want to future proof the brand to make it a bit bigger, long winded answer here. Uh, but, uh, hopefully that, uh, gives some big more nuance. Pierre, I, I wish we had more time because I've got about 30, yeah. 30 additional questions for you. We're going to have to <laughs> save them for uh, part two of this. But uh, you get the final word in 30 seconds or less here with the, the next, maybe just previewing the conference and wrapping us up here today. Brilliant, brilliant. And I will turn off my fiery uh, background here. Uh, yeah, so uh, thank you so much for that, uh, guys. It's uh, interesting to, uh, to talk about for sure. And uh, obviously, we have our New York event coming up here, 6th and 7th of March. Bandy, Lloyd, you guys have been instrumental in helping us build this show. So thank you very much for that. There's some really exciting and, and interesting talks coming up um, now in, in just a couple of weeks. So I will uh, definitely see you there. And uh, excited to, to, to hear all your, your insights. Um, but yeah, let's, let's wrap things up today, guys. It's been a fantastic session like always. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you guys as well for turning the questions back to me here uh, for, for, for some, some, some interesting insights in, at the end as well. But uh, I will see you guys in two weeks, basically, in New York. Yeah. See you there. See you guys soon. Take it easy, everyone. Thank you, guys. Cheers.